the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back to Simple Truth Moments. We're continuing on with our study of the series of a book called The Kingdom by Don Enavoldson. The sub uh, line under the title is From Creation to the Millennium. Uh, The last time we were here, uh, we did not quite finish the restored likeness chapter, so I'm going to spend a little time on that. Before I do, though, I want to read a chapter... um, from chapter 13, actually a paragraph from chapter 13 called Restored Image. And it's a nice little review of where we have been and um, where we're going. So off we go. The kingdom of God was established at creation. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And then later lost. That's Genesis chapter 3. Or at least corrupted in the Garden of Eden. However, the stage the stages of restoration were presented in the book of Exodus with remarkable detail and foreknowledge. Now, the stages of restoration, when we say that, we're again assuming that you have heard the earlier shows where uh, we're talking about the difference between uh, the gospel and the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, we can't go into that right now. Uh, those old shows are arch- archived uh, here on the KBRZ um, website. You can go to um, Simple Truth Moments, and you'll see all of the episodes that were earlier recorded. Or you can also go to uh, simpletruthministries.net uh, and uh, go on the media page, and we have them all listed there as well. Well worth your time to try to fill in the blanks and catch up. This paragraph, I'm going to continue with it, is describing that there are going to be stages of restoration, which means getting back something that was lost. And what we lost um, in chapter 3 of Genesis was um, the very purpose for which God created man. Uh, we were to have his likeness. We were to image that likeness uh, to the creation, to the world around us. And as such, he gave us um, something called dominion, which was the legal authority, the permission to rule and reign over the creation. Well, we lost all that because we handed over our legal authority to have dominion over the earth over to a serpent which was the bodily form of uh, the adversary, the fallen angel who, as we said earlier, disagreed with God's plan to have man in charge of his earthly creation, and therefore with fraud and deceit um, and deception, he tricked both Eve and Adam to hand over their authority to rule and reign over to him and we know the rest of the story. We're still living it, what that looks like when fallen angels 
are basically having their way with God's creation, our inheritance, by the way. Our inheritance is earth. And our job is to bring back the kingdom of God as it's laid out in God's plan. So when I read this sentence, I just want you to track where we're going. It's the stages of restoration of the kingdom were presented in the book of Exodus with remarkable detail and foreknowledge of God, of Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, his coming invasion of the earth, bringing his kingly government, his heavenly government, known as the kingdom of God. He was bringing that and, and a, as an offensive invasion to retake what was earlier stolen from the heirs, H-E-I-R-S, who were supposed to inherit the earth, which was mankind, not fallen angels. So last time we talked about Passover producing um, our deliverance from death. Again, we're not going to go into that. Just check out the earlier broadcast. And, um, And after the Jews left the culture and the... Um, influence of Egypt, that where they had been living for the last 430 years, um, Passover delivered them from the tenth plague of death that night, that fateful night, and they were taken to a place called Sinai. That's after the drama of the Red Sea, and then coming out on the other side alive, and at Sinai, God handed over to Moses, their leader, two vital elements of the restoration of the kingdom. The first was the law, which traced the boundary lines of man's dominion to basically say there is a limit to your authority. It's almost plenary. It's almost full authority. But you have to appreciate that you are not the creator man. (laughs) As man, you are to have dominion, but this law that's going to be given to you is to enable you to actually thrive in coordination or in sync, if you will, with your protocol of your own human design. How did God make you? Why did he make you? And besides the law, the other element that was given to Moses was the design of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of Moses described God's pattern for a restoration of the likeness of God back to man, which in short was the vertical relationship between man and his divine creator, Yahweh, Father God, Av, Av is the Jewish word for father. But before climbing the mountain to receive those mandates, one further element was stated. And Moses was presented the reason for the law and the reason that the tabernacle was necessary. Israel was to become a model or a representation, if you will, of the characteristics of God's image, of God's character, of God's nature. And as such, they were to be the image bearers of God himself and all of those elements of God that we just mentioned, his nature, his character, his very essence, as an example to the rest of the world. The last time we were here, we didn't quite finish or complete the likeness explanation, so I want to just kind of put the capstone on that. And uh, again, it's archived if you want to listen to the layout of the five, I'm sorry, the seven furnishings, seven furnishings of the tabernacle itself. So I'm going to go over just briefly what those are. And then I want to spend a little bit of time on the last two 
furnishings that we didn't really get to finish last time. So last week we talked about the layout of the furnishings inside the tabernacle of Moses. And by the way, that covers the description of the construction of the tabernacle is 15 chapters beginning in Exodus chapter 25 all the way to the very end of the book of Exodus chapter 40. That's a lot of chapters. And obviously there's a lot of symbolic uh, importance attached to not only the tabernacle's construction, but also inside the significance and the meaning of the furnishings. So as we said last time, the first of seven furnishings is the altar of burnt offering. It was made out of bronze. That's where um, the priests um, would present animal sacrifices for the sins of the community, of the uh, Hebrew community. And um, that was the most large and imposing and first furnishing that one would encounter as you pass through the gates of there's one for Moses, there was a gate for Aaron, and there was another gate for the Levitical priesthood, the Levites, the priest gate. And the altar of burnt offering or bronze altar was very large and imposing, and it was out in the open. There was no roof. This is out in the what they call the outer courtyard. And it was active all the time because there was a lot of sin in the camp. So unfortunately, there was a lot of sacrifice of of animals going on to ask for the forgiveness uh, from the Father. The next of seven, the second furnishing in the tabernacle, is called the bronze laver. And that that contained water where the priests had to wash um, themselves from all of the grime and the blood, and you can imagine what they looked like um, working at the altar of burnt offering. Uh, it was a cleansing that one had to leave. And, and then going towards the roof area, there are two sections. One's called the holy place, and that leads into something called the most holy place. Both are under roof. And there are three uh, furnishings inside the first roofed area called the holy place. The first one was called the table of showbread. And um, that was a table that was made out of acacia wood. It was um, also covered over in gold. And there was bread on the top um, of the table. The fourth furnishing is the all gold, no no wood contained in this, all gold um, lampstand or the menorah that lit up the inside of the holy place, gave it its light. And then, of course, the um, third and well, actually number five, but third inside this holy place area, uh, it's the fir- fifth furnishing and the third furnishing fifth furnishing of, of, um, of total seven, and the third furnishing in the holy place itself. And it was called the altar of incense, and it was right before the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And the author spells out that this pattern of furnishings offer a symbol, if you will, a type, a shadow of the journey that man was going to engage in in order to regain, to have restored back the likeness of God back to him. So you can kind of also see uh, the patterns of when people get um, saved um, with the gospel message, uh, what the progress is um, after that that we see in the, in the New Testament. So the altar burnt offering obviously is a uh, representation of the perfect offering that was off, that was offered up in the New Testament in uh, Yeshua, 
his Jewish name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, was offered as an atoning sacrifice, as a bridge, if you will, between sinful man and the relationship that they would now have back to Father God to restore what Adam and Eve originally had prior to sin. So the next step with the labor is the uh, water um, element, which represents water baptism. So that's normally baptism is the next step that uh, the Christian would follow after receiving forgiveness of sins at the altar of burnt offering. And after the labor, we go into something called the holy place. And now this is a maturation process. This is a growth process. This is a journey of drawing nearer and nearer to God so that his likeness, his character, his nature can be deposited not just next to us, not just with us, but inside of us. So when we go into the holy place, the three furnishings that are there, the first one that we say is the table of showbread. Well, obviously, we need nourishment and growth to proceed on this journey. And we can see the symbolic representation of Jesus when he said, I am the bread of life. We're supposed to eat that bread every day to nourish us spiritually so that we can continue on to mature into a perfect man, to be able to receive God's likeness. And notice the fourth furnishing is the lampstand, the menorah, and that lights up a dark area because the holy place was the first location that was covered over with a roof. And it doesn't have outside light like the altar of burnt offering and the laver. In other words, the altar of burnt offering and the labor is uh, basically Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and the labor is baptism. So that's available out in that outer courtyard, and that's available to a lot of people to be able to see because it has no roof. But once we go, go into the holy place, the fourth furnishing is the lampstand. And the table of showbread, by the way, was made both with wood and with gold. And, of course, Gold represents divinity in, in the, when we study the s- symbols of the Bible, and the wood represents humankind, mankind. Well, we can, if Jesus says, I am, I am the bread of life, we can see that in the table that holds that bread contains both divinity and humanity simultaneously. So we can see that also as a represent- representation of Christ. But the lampstand, when we get to the fourth furnishing is all gold. And as such, um, the next step that Christians often journey towards as they are going towards the Father is um, getting the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And um, the Holy Spirit's job in John 16 is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, The Holy Spirit's also our nurturer, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the gifts um, so the, the, of the Spirit. That is all laid out in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 and 13 and 14. And also in Romans, it's really important that as we mature, as we grow, as we draw nearer to God, we need to learn what the rules of the game are, so to speak, in the spiritual world. We don't know what they are. We're just learning them. And the Holy Spirit is there to be our guide. He's there to give us wisdom, knowing what to do next, knowing what to uh, ask next, knowing what to think next, knowing what, how to act <laughs> and how to speak in various situations with various people, and to understand what the will of God is as we take this journey. What does God want in these um, daily steps that we take? So that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Now notice that's lighting up so you have divine light showing you the ways of God. And you're learning the giftings, and you're, you're now walking in what Paul calls walking in the Spirit in Galatians. And so we're disconnecting more and more from our 
um, unfortunately, uh, Adamic, sin-cursed earth world, and we're now starting to operate in the heavenly kingdom realm. Even though we're still on earth, Jesus operated on a completely different uh, operating system, and we're now beginning to learn that, especially when we get um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The fifth um, furnishing is the uh, altar of incense, and that's where we offer our prayers day and night. If the incense and what it represented go, went up, straight up, and we are to communicate with God frequently. We are to pray to him. Now, Jesus says he, we are to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And we're going to learn about how we're going to be starting to pray a little differently maybe than what we learned when we get into the next chapter, um, calling, calling or for the restoration of our dominion. The Scripture clearly says we're supposed to pray without ceasing. Well, there's a reason for that. Um, this Satan is always trying to influence us in our thought life, and we need to get very sophisticated by praying to God on a regular basis, asking him questions, asking for his direction, conversing with him. We are now have defenses whereby we can identify the uh, maneuverings and the tactics of the enemy to try to bring us away from us in contact with God. Because as we are in contact with him, we're basically developing an increase in what they call, and what is called by Jesus, eternal life, relationally knowing the Father and the Son whom he sent. Where do you see that? Where do you find that? John seventeen three. All right. So we're going to finish up with the last two furnishings of the most holy place. We didn't talk about that very much last time. The last two furnishings, as, we, as Jesus was the sacrifice that tore open the veil, it says this very clearly in the book of Hebrews, we're to come boldly before the throne of grace. We now have access to, to the Father himself based on what Jesus accomplished by obeying his Father's will to the point of death. And so when we get in, we are looking at the, at the number, the sixth article, sixth furnishing, if you will, which was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was also uh, gold um, and wood together. Acacia wood, again, uh, laid, overlaid with gold. And in it contained three items, um, Aaron's rod that budded. Also, it contained the, a jar of manna uh, to represent what happened in the, in the desert journeys of the, of the Jews. And the third thing is um, the Ten Commandments. So, again, what, is this, what does this symbolize? Well, whenever you have divinity mi- mixed with, um, with humanity, with the gold and the wood together and the construction of the ark, um, again, that's a representation of Jesus. Jesus um, is the bread of life. Well, we also have a jar of manna, that, that bread inside. What, ha- what about Aaron's rod that budded? Well, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the, he is the resurrection life. And we had Aaron's rod that was disconnected from anything, but nevertheless, it budded. So Jesus is the representation of, of experiencing death and subsequent resurrection of eternal life after death, to defeat death. And the third item is the Ten Commandments. Well, Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill the law. That's why the Ten Commandments are inside the the ark. The ark, by many scholars' uh, opinion, saying that represents Jesus. But over the top is called something called the mercy seat, which is all gold, no wood. And it's uh, covered over by two cherubim angels, uh, wings that are covering. And the, the very presence of God is on this, which is called the seventh furnishing called the mercy seat. That is where the actual presence of Father God joins with the presence of Yeshua, with Jesus as represented in the ark. 
So we have the Father in the Son and the Son in the Father. Now, where do you see that? Well, that's um, the night before Jesus died. He explained in John 17. Um, he explained in John 17, 20 and 21. He said, I am the Father, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Um, and his prayer was that for these and those, in other words, the, these were the apostles and those were the I believe the Gentiles who were to come later um, after receiving the the presentation of the gospel. And he said, I in you, Father, you in me, we in them, being the people, the apostles, the future converts, the future believers, and them in us. So it's all unity. It's picture three concentric circles, if you will. The top one is the Father, the second one is the Son, and the third one is uh, the church and the believers. And then below that is the purpose of why this unity is so important. It's talking about inside. It's talking about God indwelling. And it's so that the world may believe. This is what Yeshua, this is what Jesus said, so that the world may believe that you, Father, sent me. That's what the end game is as to receiving the likeness of God. We are God's co-regents. We are God's representatives. We are to take out the deposit of the vertical download of God's likeness out into the world as his visible imagers. We are to be image bearers of God's likeness. That is our original purpose. And Yeshua, Jesus, came to restore every single element of God's creation blueprint that we observed in Genesis chapters 1 and Genesis chapters 2. We are going to talk about the restoration of dominion in the second half of this show. Put on your seatbelts. Look forward to seeing you after the break. God bless. Welcome back. We are continuing on with our study of the kingdom from creation to the millennium by Don Ennevoldson. And um, we finished up chapter 12, which is restored likeness. I'm going to talk briefly about um, restored image. And the image part of the purpose of God uh, had for mankind had to do with representation. Before climbing to the mountain at uh, Sinai, um, Moses received, or he was presented, the reason he was going to get the Ten Commandments. We've already talked about that. That's to uh, describe or put boundaries on the dominion of man so he doesn't get out of sync with his, the way he was designed, which was to operate perfectly um, in a protocol, if you will, a model for his maximum performance as long as he would obey God. And um, it's kind of like, I'm trying to think of an example. Somebody told me an incident that they had when they tried to put diesel fuel into a gasoline vehicle. Um, they, didn't, they weren't paying attention, and they put in the wrong type of fuel into that vehicle. And uh, they got probably half a block away before the engine sputtered and basically conked out on them. And uh, there was major surgery that had to be done to revive that vehicle. But that's an example of coming out of um, sync with the design protocols with which God created man. God knew what he was doing in putting every element and every part into us that was required for its full functioning. And um, for us to do our purpose, um, which is to do what? We are to be God's image bearers of his likeness. I'll say it again. We are to be God's image bearers, or we carry it, um, to reveal his likeness 
as an example to the rest of the world. We are to model or represent the characteristics of God's nature, of his character. What's he like? And so in the role of that, the reason behind the tabernacle of us getting closer to God, that journey of being able to be in a position where God can do a download of his likeness into us, and we covered that in the last half an hour, of that journey of going through all seven furnishings as a progression to reach the proximity where the essence of God is. And it's not next to us. It's all about indwelling. If you read John 14, John 15, John 16, and John 17, that's not talking about God living with us. It's way more deep. It's way more intimate than that. That's talking about God indwelling us. Well, early on, Moses is going to learn that in Exodus 19.6, that part of the reason for the tabernacle, which is to get closer to God, to be able to vertically download his likeness into us, and to learn the law, the Ten Commandments, so that we don't go beyond the boundaries of safety, because those rules exist for our safety, for our health, for our life. Um, But the reason for the law and for the tabernacle was so that we could become image bearers of that downloaded likeness. And in Exodus 19.6, that's where God reveals to Moses, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, the priesthood um, serves functions as a representative of the people as an intermediary, if you will. Um, and they were to, their, in their roles, was to be a voice for the people to God. Um, by the time the first century rolled around, and, and Jesus was now on the scene along with John the Baptist announcing the restoration of this kingdom, um, uh, the Jews understood, because of all of their experience in the Old Testament, that they as a nation were to be both priests and royalty. And that royalty has had a kingship element of dominion to it. The, um, we can see that kings were to have certain characteristics. Um, in Deuteronomy 17, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, one of the earliest job descriptions for a king was that he was to be one of the people. He was not to be uh, an outside foreigner, unable to understand the needs of the nation over which he was going to be king. Um, Interestingly enough, he was to write for himself a copy of the law and read it over and over and over again in order to remind himself of his responsibilities to the people and to God. He was not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. Above all, this king was to exhibit justice. We see that in Proverbs 16.10. His mouth uh, would not or should not betray justice. Uh, his first priority as king was to uh, protect the rights of the poor and the oppressed. We can see that several examples. Proverbs uh, 29.14. Proverbs 29.30. Uh, 30, oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Proverbs 31, verses 4 through 5. Proverbs 31, um, also in verses 8 and 9. The greatest model of, of a king for Israel was uh, David, of course who was instructed to shepherd my people Israel. You see that instruction in 1 Chronicles 11, verse 2. So a king was imbued or or, uh, authorized, was delegated tremendous authority for the purpose of guiding God's people and protecting the people. By declaring his people to be kings, God invested in them the responsibility for implementing human authority for the purpose of shepherding, and for the purpose of protection. Now, we see when um, Abraham encountered Melchizedek, Melchizedek had a dual role. He was both a, had a kingly function and a priestly function. Um, We also see that when um, David takes over the city of Jerusalem, he also has a priestly function as well as a kingly uh, function. And we also see that with Yeshua, when Jesus shows up. He also has that dual uh, function, if you will, and responsibility of both a king and a priest. 
So back in the time of Isaiah, um, all Israel were to, were to be priests. And it says uh, in Isaiah 61, 6, but you will be called the priests of the Lord, and they shall speak of you as ministers of our God. There were a variety of responsibilities that were included in the role of being a priest. There was the legal aspect um, in the sense that uh, the lawyers and judges of ancient Israel actually were the priesthood. We can see that in Ezekiel, um, in Ezekiel 44, chapter 44, verse 24. Um, in a dispute, Ezekiel wrote, they, being the Levites, were to act as judges. The Levites were the tribe of the priests. Um, Moses was told and um, in any if any case arises requiring decisions between one kind of homicide and another, or one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault on another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall rise up and go to the place of the Lord, your God, that he will choose, and you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in the office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. The Even the Hebrew word for priest, which is Kohen, suggests a legal orientation in the sense that a Kohen was one who stands up for another and mediates his cause. So in other words, he was acting as um, an advocate. Um, but also there, that was a legal function. There were several responsibilities that were expected of the priests. Um, numerous er- er- areas of leadership um, were required, where they were incumbent that the priests carry out. For example, they blew trumpets, they blew shofars, signaling people to assemble, to congregate for important events or in a, um, in a warfare situation, leading them into the battle. Um, they also, as priests, oversaw the functions of the tabernacle and later the temple, offering sacrifices on behalf of others. They, as priests, interceded and offered atonement for others. This is a quote from um, Numbers chapter 18, verse 1, to bear the responsibility for offenses connected with the sanctuary. But in all these ways, a pr- priest became actually the voice of, of the people to God. We can see that in Leviticus 5, uh, verses 6, Leviticus 5.13, Leviticus 5.16, and again Leviticus 5.18. God called the entire nation to fulfill this role, the entire nation of Israel. The fact that he did suggests how God's chosen people were to participate in this restored kingdom. In Isaiah 49.6, it says they are, would become a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The authority of kings was given in order to overcome any obstacle to the priestly mission of calling the world back into the kingdom. So, again, uh, there's an interesting mix here uh, where we have Melchizedek and then we have David and then we eventually have Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, Um, the Jewish Messiah. Messiah was recognized as an embodiment of of this dual role of both king and priest. In fact, Jewish writers in the first century and before found a duality in the prophetic references to Messiah, though they did have some difficulty in understanding, on comprehending how the two could be contained inside one person. So we see an example of David, Messiah ben David, or Messiah son of David, was a royal king from the lineage of the most revered of Israel's kings. David was promised an eternal throne. You see that in 2 Samuel, uh, verse 7, uh, chapter 7, I'm sorry, verse 16. And that promise became the basis for prophetic references. Uh, as we see in Jeremiah 23, uh, verse 5, the days are coming, uh, God said, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king 
who will reign wisely and do what is just and what is right in the land. We see in Ezekiel 34, verse 23, God declares, I will place over them one shepherd, my shepherd David. So, when Jesus appears, we are really seeing that he is a fusion, if you will, of both kingly and priestly function. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Yeshua HaMashiach. When I say that, if you're listening for the first time, Yeshua is the Jewish name of Jesus. Ha is the, and Mashiach is the word Hebrew word for Messiah. He was the king to whom every knee would bow, as we see in Romans 14.11. He was the conquering king on a white horse, the king of kings and the lord of lords. We see an amazing picture of that in Revelations uh, chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And at the same time, Yeshua, Jesus, was the high priest who stands at the right hand of the Father, and he constantly intercedes on behalf of his people. We see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. He was the one who sacrificed himself to atone for their sin and to reconnect them to God, their king. We see that in Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And early Christians uh, saw the connection immediately. Jesus was fulfilling both the prophecies of Messiah ben Joseph, ben means son of, Messiah ben Joseph at his first coming, but Messiah later would fulfill the prophecies of Messiah ben David, Messiah, son of David, at his second coming. They did not see any incongruity in the roles resting in one person. Now, for the Jews, however, at least for those who would reject uh, the presentation of God's kingdom, this was unacceptable, and they began in the first century to distance themselves from this duality of both priesthood and kingship of Messiah's jobs, or Messiah's tasks, if you will. Messiah ben Joseph, the suffering sacrifice, was increasingly marginalized in the Jewish uh, circles. And in rejecting Messiah, they also rejected, unfortunately, the restoration of God's idea of what his kingdom should look like. Christian believers embraced the manifestation of Messiah, but within a couple of generations, unfortunately, they also largely drifted away from God's goal. All too often, Christians would fail to move from the kingship and the priesthood of Jesus to the ultimate goal which was not simply to revere Jesus as king and priest. Rather, the intention was for the followers of Jesus to move into the roles of kings and priests themselves. They st- the Christians stopped short of understanding that they were to have those roles as kings and priests. I'm going to go take a little side uh, deviation here. I'm going to take you to Revelation chapter 5 just to show you that this was not just history. This is also dealing with the prophetic in the future. Look at Revelations 5, um, chapter 5, 9 through up to 11. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. The song is about Jesus. For you, capital Y, you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Notice it didn't say you're taking us to heaven. The purpose for, for, the, for the Messiah, for the Lamb of God to be slain, was to redeem us back to our Father, back to God. And it says that quite clearly at the last part of um, verse 9 in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. Out of every tribe and nation and people, let me go at it again, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, verse 10, here it is, and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. 
Now, that's pretty clear of what our future roles are. And it's Jesus who made us kings and priests to our God. And that we have a future role when he reestablishes and brings his kingdom back to earth, that we will reign with him on earth. Now, let me show you another verse on that. If we go to uh, Revelation um, chapter 20, uh, starting at verse 4, and I saw thrones. And of course, we know that the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's verse 4. Look at verse 5 of chapter 20. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Here it is in verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Okay, so that's just two references, the fact that we're going to be uh, functioning in a kingly role and a priestly role when Jesus returns to reestablish his kingdom here. So, let me just read here from the chapter, and then we're going to wrap it up. Jesus called his disciples to the most minute and intimate imitation of his life. I'm reading from John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Now, that's kind of mind-blowing. We're going to go into that uh, probably next week when we talk about restored dominion in chapter 14. But for now, let's finish up this chapter on image in our roles as kings and priests. His disciples were described in the same terms that God called Israel out at Sinai. Jesus has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. We, in Revelations chapter 1, verse 6, we didn't read that earlier, but that's worth checking out. He has made them a kingdom of a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's Revelations 5.10. We did read that earlier. But check this out in 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 9. They are a chosen people and a royal priesthood. That's New Testament. In this reality lies the restoration of the image of God. The people of God are called to be the visible image of God to the world. That's our job. We've lost our purpose. Preached a gospel of escape. This is No, this is a gospel of the kingdom restoration. Jesus identified the principle when he declared in John 14, 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Mankind is to live in such a way that when people see a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, they have seen both the Father and the Son. We're to be a visible representative as image bearers of his likeness. That is why Paul, the apostle, could confidently declare, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Check it out, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. So how do, we, how do we do this? This task is accomplished through the call to be kings and priests of the kingdom. All whom Jesus sends out to represent him or represent him are given authority, which is legal permission, a restoration of their earlier dominion in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. 
Jesus, when he sent out the 70 disciples in Luke 10, verse 19, check it out. He said, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy, and nothing of his by any means will hurt you. Authority is given to tear down strongholds of the enemy that keep others from entering into the kingdom, living lifestyle themselves. This represents the use of kingdom authority for a priestly service. The priesthood includes activities like praying for one another, listening to confessions of weakness for the purpose of bringing strength and deliverance back to them. And we see that in James 5, verse 16. It also involves restoring those who fall. And we see that in Galatians chapter 6, 10 verses there. Um, the priesthood also includes seeking unity. We see that in Romans twelve eighteen, where it balances with spiritual judgment when necessary. We see that in Galatians 6, 1, Matthew 18, verses uh, 15 through 17. In fact, being royal priests requires the attention to virtually everything the church is called to do. By embracing our royal priesthood, followers of Yeshua, followers of Jesus, enter into a restored version of the kingdom of God as it was envisioned at creation at the very beginning. To be a king and a priest is to enter into fully being the image of God to the world. The gospel of the kingdom as Jesus presented it was not new. It was the oldest of designs restored back to its wholeness. God bless you guys. Hope to see you next week on Simple Truth Moments when we take on the chapter of Restored Dominion. See you then. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.